Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast engages at the intersection of art and technology. This week, we're in Nashville, Tennessee, where leaders of the 3686 Entrepreneurship Festival invited us to stage a live podcast event. We're here to talk about the creative economy. At the heart of our conversation is a startup that aims to have a big cultural impact in this state, the Tennessee Triennial for Contemporary Art. The major art exhibition premieres in 2021, joining others across the United States. Every three years, Prospect New Orleans, Cleveland's Front International, and Counter Public in St. Louis design urban art experiences for their diverse publics. New Orleans and Nashville are both southern destinations for music and festivals. To think about what a citywide art exhibition could mean for Nashville, let's go back in time to the year 2017 when the fourth iteration of Prospect New Orleans came to the Crescent City. You'll hear how the Lotus in Spite of the Swamp evokes the musical character of New Orleans and the surrounding natural environment. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Today we take you to South Louisiana for Prospect New Orleans, an international contemporary art triennial born in 2007. Let's set the stage with a conversation I recorded during Miami Art Week 2016. Current artistic director Trevor Schoonmaker and former executive director Brooke Davis Anderson talk about how Prospect came to New Orleans, and they share what they're planning for the next citywide exhibition. Today's conversation is about Prospect New Orleans. It's a critically important curatorial platform that has significant origins. So let's talk about the origins, like why was Prospect New Orleans born? Prospect New Orleans is really a project of post-Katrina in New Orleans. When Katrina took place in 2005, the art community, like many different communities in the city, fled. As they slowly but surely came back into the city, They were wondering where everybody else was, one, and they were also wondering how arts and culture could play a role in revitalizing the city after such a catastrophe. And it was an idea born of many private citizens, a gallerist, a curator, enthusiasts for contemporary art that thought, you know what, this city with its extraordinary architecture, its unforgettable food, its singular landscape, its history with Mardi Gras, its, as Trevor likes to talk about, its confluence of so many cultures through the history of its time, is a perfect site for contemporary artists to visit and talk about the now. So the idea of the triennial was really born to boost the economy in the city The first one took place three years after Katrina in 2008. And it was conceived in the tradition of the great biennials internationally, like Venice and Sao Paulo and Istanbul, 
to bring together international artists and to respond in some ways. The first one, I remember, responded specifically to the site, the cultural landscape of New Orleans. And I think the prospect has evolved. Maybe let's talk a little bit about how it's evolved. Trevor is the artistic director of Prospect 4, but each iteration has grown more of a relationship with the city, and I think that's important to talk about. Right. As much as it sees itself in a conversation with Venice and Sao Paulo and the other international triennials and biennials everywhere, we also identify with the local. And we have from the beginning, the Prospect One included about eight local artists, artists active in New Orleans or from New Orleans and Louisiana. The same with two and three and four. We've always roughly had about a dozen or so local artists. So as much as we view this as an international platform, we see the interaction between the international and local being vital to our narrative and vital to our, our health. So Trevor is going to be including some local artists as well in Prospect 4. And I think this leads me to want to hear more about last night's conversation at one of the conversations at Art Basel Miami Beach about new biennials. Sure. What what came out of that, Trevor? Well, uh, Jens Hoffman led a great conversation with the curators from Site Santa Fe and from the Honolulu Biennial coming up in March and myself. You know, I think the the big takeaway was that there's so many biennials and triennials in the world. How do we differentiate ourselves? How do we make them meaningful and impactful, not just for the global art world, but for the local community, the the people that live in the environment that these things are put on, and and who is it for? That's sort of the first question. But how do you make it stand out as different? And and everyone on the panel across the board sort of agreed that if you're going to create a new biennial at a time when there's so many around the world, it has to have some sort of focus. And beyond um, capturing what's happening across the world in contemporary art. So with Prospect, we're really focusing on New Orleans being this incredible city that Brooke just spoke so eloquently about. So artists are, have, from, as you said, from P1 to P2 to P3, responded to the city or found synergies and relationships and ties between whatever part of the world they may be from, whether it's Tokyo or Cartagena or wherever to New Orleans. There's some synergies and parallels. But also Prospect is a, is a triennial that is integrated into the fabric of the city itself. So there's no home base. The, the last iteration had 18 venues. We're shooting for around 20 or so. And, um, and they range from established museums to site-specific things, processionals, whatever it might be, but really integrating into the city itself. And one of the benefits we have, um, and it can also be a challenge and a point of stress, is that we don't have any bricks and mortar. You know, there isn't any site that we own that is our home base. We've certainly come to venues throughout our history with our three past and prior triennials, but we are always starting from scratch as to where this exhibition is going to take place. I'm a huge fan. I come to everyone. <laughs> And everyone is a different experience of the city, and I think that's really critically important, too. And this one, I know in particular, is going to be connected with the celebration of New Orleans' tricentennial. That's right. Yeah, the city is celebrating its 300th birthday in 2018. It was one of our decisions that led us to change our dates slightly and extend into the end of February. There was another reason, too, and 
the broad feedback that we got from our devoted public, everybody hands down wanted more time. So we're also making this a longer presentation than we have historically. I think that's going to be an amazing opportunity. And many of the curators I speak with that are artistic directors of biennials, their main goal is to bring something to the local community. And the longer you leave something in the space, the longer the opportunities for them to understand how important that the biennial thinks they are. Yep. That's right. You know? And it's, you know, it's one thing to bring our community, the, the community that's here in Miami, this international art world that travels around to all of these important events and activities, and we certainly see ourselves in that calendar. And the impulse to come to New Orleans by the art world is very strong, and we've had the support, I think, from the beginning, from Prospect One. But the other community that's equally as important to us and fundamental to our future success is New Orleanians. And building the support of the local is something that our team has been spending a lot of time working on in the last two years. And I think to your earlier point about how Prospect has always engaged with the community, and to Brooke's point, every city is a living, breathing organism that's always changing. And New Orleans has been in a more rapid state of change post-Katrina. So Prospect 1 responded to how New Orleans was in 2008, and Prospect 3 responded to how New Orleans was in 2014. It's going to be very different in 2017 because the city's different, the community's different, their engagement with contemporary art's different, the demographics change, the buildings, you know, everything changes. So that it keeps things dynamic, um, and that was something we talked a little bit about last night as well. And with the, the tricentennial gives us a great foothold to our anchor to really think about where New Orleans is, why it's there, the mouth of the Mississippi, on the Gulf of Mexico, and these historical connections. So it's it's enabled me to focus even a little bit more tightly on North America, Central America, South America, Caribbean, Africa, Europe, that are more historical connections. Of course, there are artists from other parts of the world that will be included, but we've, we've uh, honed in just a little bit. That reminds me of what we were discussing this morning. You were mentioning Franklin Sermons, the artistic director of Prospect 3, his legacy, his point of view about New Orleans and what the, the large black community, the Caribbean influence, he brought all that in. To me, that was a new energy that was given to Prospect. And I'm looking forward to you talking a little bit more about the theme I heard for <laughs> this next Prospect New Orleans, Lotus in Spite of the Swamp. Lotus in Spite of the Swamp. Yeah, that's, that's the title and the theme and our sort of conceptual umbrella for Prospect 4. It's, of course, the swamp is evocative of the actual natural landscape around New Orleans and, and where it's situated and its, its connection to water and the way that water connects us to the rest of the world. But the lotus flower, as a, that metaphor, comes from Buddhist and Hindu philosophy of the, this beautiful flower growing in this fetid, murky swamp and, and the ability for the necessity for us to be able to, in difficult times, the darkest times, to be able to rise out of that and grow something beautiful and powerful and strong and graceful. And I think in this particular moment, it's maybe even, that's always true, but I think in this, we're really feeling it maybe a little bit more than usual right now. And the last part of that puzzle and sort of the title is 
Archie Shepp, the jazz saxophonist, actually used that very language to describe jazz itself. He said jazz was the lotus in spite of the swamp. So with New Orleans being the birthplace of jazz and the importance of performance and music in this city, there will be a lot of engagement with that in our show. It just felt like the right sort of uh, evocative title for us. We're so excited about Trevor's vision for Prospect 4 because it's, it's spiritual, it's communal, it's performative. You know, it's so rooted in New Orleans with the Archie Shep connection. But I also want to talk about some of the feedback we've been getting about the title because it, it shows to me that we have all these great opportunities to enter into a discourse with locals. So when we're out there promoting Prospect 4 and we're talking about Trevor's very poetic title, I'm in love with it, The Lotus in Spite of the Swamp, a couple of New Orleanians will say, well, Brooke, that's, that's great, and I get it, but wouldn't it be The Lotus because of the swamp? And I think that that's a valid response to the title because it also shows a real sense of pride and love of the local, of the place, which is something that hopefully we all can feel about our own places and our own environment. Once you start informing your audience that it's actually a quote from Archie Shep to describe one of America's greatest art forms, jazz, then they're like, oh, okay, good, I get it. It's one of those titles that's very provocative and evocative. And it allows us to really talk to our audiences in an exciting way. And I think just the title itself is going to give a positive energy to the way people are thinking about it before they come. Yeah, because, you know, something you talk about, and one of the reasons why I love you as a curator, is you talk about the importance of beauty, too. Sure. And, of course, that lotus is a symbol of beauty, just pure beauty. That's right. And artists bring that to the table. Yeah, I think it's important not to overlook beauty and, and for it not to be a dirty word in the art world, that you can have work that is conceptually rigorous, deeply meaningful in terms of its societal impact, and still be beautiful, and, and hit on all those fronts, and I think that's the aim for the, for the triennial in general, so that, I mean, beauty is like your sharpest tool as an artist, really, to the hit it pulls people in, it makes them look longer, it gets your message across. If you're too didactic or you're too obtuse, uh, you're only preaching to the choir. And the same work can hit on multiple levels, so it can be the first moment can be just, wow, it's aesthetic beauty, and the next can be it's, it's a very meditative, and then it, it, you know, you peer off another layer of the onion and, it, and you see this deep critique in the work, and it can all be there. What parts of the city are inspiring projects? I might say that this is going to be more river-focused, and we're going to be experiencing the Mississippi more, both the banks of and perhaps even the, the river itself. I think you're kind of wanting to make sure that the river's not overlooked by our, our audience. That's true. Yeah, because, I, again, like I said earlier, like that's the reason that New Orleans is there. It's relatively easy to come to New Orleans and never see the Mississippi, which is kind of mind-boggling. These opportunities will change from P4 to P5 because the city's changing. But I think trying to to focus on the water and bring people to it is one of our strategies and maybe compress the footprint a little bit in general. Are any artists going to be working with certain communities? Thanks to funding from the Hellas Foundation, we've been bringing artists into the city all year. 
who have been spending anywhere from a week or more. A couple of artists have been there for several months. We've established some residencies with partners like the Joan Mitchell Center and the Studio in the Woods, two great partners in New Orleans, where we've actually had our Prospect Four artists in residence. And I want to know from you, Trevor, what does this opportunity mean to you as a curator? It's fantastic. It's ideal. I was speaking with Dan Cameron before he organized the first one, and he called me up to tell me about it, and uh, and I went to P1 and loved it, and then I went to P3, and I've been visiting New Orleans since the mid-90s because family friends live there. It's a city that I love, first and foremost. It's a biennial, now triennial, that I've fallen in love with. So it's a really unique opportunity. You know, to curate a biennial is a great opportunity anywhere, but this one speaks to me on a personal level. So it's just an honor, and it's fun to be in the city. A year after I speak with Trevor Schoonmaker and Brooke Davis Anderson about their vision for Lotus in spite of the swamp, I head to the Crescent City to find out what happened next. I'm here to explore creative projects by 73 Prospect 4 artists. Quintron and Miss Pussycat are my first encounter. Playful and inventive, the artist duo calls New Orleans home. They've been presenting puppet shows around the world for two decades, in rock music clubs, art spaces, and movie theaters. This time, the stage is set at the Ogden Museum. A puppet movie landed at the heart of their P4 installation. Shot in mini-magic with an all-star puppet cast, the mystery in Old Bath Bath is part of an ongoing series, Trixie and the Tree Trunks. This tree is special. It gives out secret messages. Not anymore. Here's Miss Pussycat. It's the mystery in Old Bath Bath, and it's a puppet movie that Quintron and I made a couple years ago. And right now they're in the happy garden. Oh, that's right. It's the tree. It's the tree. And the tree gets sick. And to me, that relates to the lotus in the swamp because it's plant-based artwork. <laughs> Fake plant-based artwork. <laughs> Life is a Let's describe what we're seeing in your installation. Okay, so everything is based on the last four puppet shows that I've done and the movie. Three of them have been touring puppet shows that Quintron and I have done. We go on tour in rock clubs mostly. These have been all over the world and they've still survived somehow. That's the clothes made by Small Furry Animals. That's the Cookie Carnival Baking Contest. That's the Happy Castle of Goblinburg. These are backdrops that are going to be hung up that relate to these shows. And around the corner is Frenchie and Jet. Who are Frenchie and Jet? Frenchie and Jet are right here. Oh. That's Frenchie and that's Jet and that's Valentine and her stunt double and Taffy and his stunt double and Booker and Lamont. And that's a photo of Valentine behind you. There's photos I've taken of the puppets with a medium format camera and this is a storyboard because you do a lot of work actually to do a puppet show yes it's a lot of drawing and plotting and planning and then what's new about this show 
is there's papottery. <laughs> I started, papottery. Papottery. I started making ceramic statues of the puppets. And then out front there's a puppet theater that's been on tour and it's portable. And they're all portable, but that one's really portable because it's inflatable. It's Quintron's turn to introduce one of his sound machines. And this is called a weather warlock. Weather warlock, yeah. This is a weather-controlled uh, drone synth, and by drone I mean a musical drone. It's tuned to an F major chord. It can be tuned to other keys as well, but right now it's tuned to F major. The notes of that chord, the root, the third, the fifth, and the octave, are all modulated by weather sensors that sit outside, and there are sensors to detect wind speed, sunrise and sunset, moisture, like rainfall, dew, snowfall, etc., and a temperature sensor, which we can't see, which is in there, that modulates the speed of the bass drone. So, let me turn it up here. This is the, that's the wind speed. Just wind all by itself. This is the bass drone whose speed is controlled by, the phasing speed is controlled by temperature. And that changes very slowly, so I can't really demonstrate it, but. And then there is sunrise and sunset sensor which only activates when the UV is between darkness and full bright. And it takes about 45 minutes for that. It's a slowly ascending or descending pitch that changes in those times of sunrise and sunset. Or when it's like a dark and cloudy day, it'll go crazy and sound like a ghost. A really bright moon will activate that one too. It really should be called a sky sensor, not a sun, sunrise or sunset sensor. It's, detecting UV drops below full bright sunlight and uh, it'll, it only activates when, when that UV falls below that threshold. And then there is a rain sensor and it's not raining so we can't hear that. Let me go fake the rain sensor right okay. now. Okay. Fake rain. In the brains which sits inside you have all these parameters you can control. You can play it musically as an instrument. And then I'm going to demonstrate the sunrise and sunset, the sky sensor, just by putting my hand over it. You haven't really heard it unless you've heard a real sunset. So imagine that pitch drop instead of going woo-woo with my hand, imagine it going microtone by microtone over 40 minutes. Like something you could never do with your hand in a knob. It requires the hand of God to make something change that pitch drop that slowly. Really the most interesting time of day is sunrise and sunset when that's doing its thing and coming in and out of harmony with the rest of the instrument. 
the Weather Warlock is streaming 24-7 all the time on an online radio station at weatherfortheblind.org. Part of this project is to make this kind of healing music free forever, living free music forever for everyone. This is obviously an example of what's been described as swamp tech as, yeah. as a genre. Tell yeah, me, tell me so. what that means exactly to I you, swamp tech. I think it just tech. means kind of building things out of, it was called that because of the locale of where we are. And it also sort of means just like trash electronics, making do with what you have. And um, if I can make something out of parts I have laying around, out of garbage, I'll go that route as opposed to going to the store. Quintron and Miss Pussycat make art and music under the spell of New Orleans. Brazilian-born artist Paulo Nazareth is drawn to the city, too. Paulo walked most of the way from Brazil to New Orleans, with plans to continue heading north, tracing the path of the Underground Railroad, a network of secret routes and safe houses once used by African-American slaves escaping to freedom in the northern United States. The artist is a wanderer, often going long distances by bus and on foot. In 2011, he traveled from Brazil through 15 countries to reach New York City, where the protesters of Occupy Wall Street welcomed him with food, clothing, and shelter. Of African and indigenous descent, the artist has a wiry beard and a bush of Afro hair. There's something of a shaman about him. When we meet in New Orleans on a chilly November evening, I notice he's wearing flip-flops. Paolo tells me that local authorities often challenge and disrespect him because of his strange accent and appearance. That doesn't stop his roving philosophical quest or his performance practice in the public realm. He marvels at the kindness of strangers and collects surprising souvenirs. If you walk, the people give you everything. It's like if the people have one bread, the people broke the bread in two parts and give you one part. The people eat the bread together. The people give you everything, give you shoe, give you water, give you a different gift in Central America, no, in Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua. Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico, South Mexico. Yeah, and the people give you a smile. Give you a smile, it's very important. Give you a hug. Sometimes I receive the shoe, no? But I don't use shoe because it's... Uh, use flip-flops. Yeah, I use flip-flops <laughs> because I, I make a collection by dust. You're collecting yeah, dust. Dust, yeah. dust. You're collecting dust with your feet. Yes. Well, you must have quite a collection. All the things I make collection is seed. Some watermelon seed. It's uh, from South Africa. The work is not only the object, but the relationship. It's the essence. London-based Sonia Boyce is a British Afro-Cuban artist. Like Paolo Nazareth, she engages in art as a social practice. 
Our conversation takes place at the Contemporary Arts Center. Her two-channel film installation immerses us in cultural irony, juxtaposing scenes shot in an elegant formal garden in England with those captured during a vivid celebration in Barbados. The film starts off in a stately home called Harewood House, which is in the north of England. And it's a house that's owned by the Lizelles family, who gained all their wealth from slavery and sugar production. And that's what we're seeing right now, is a stilt dancer all alone in the garden. In the gardens of Harewood House. And actually, there are, right at the beginning of the film, you see the expanse of wealth and land that the Lizelles have. And yeah, you have this stilt walker who looks carnivalesque, a kind of combination between a kind of admiral and a circus character. Yes, but also looking fairly puzzled and maybe there's longing in his face. Well, like, why am I here? Why am I here? Because, of course, he, he seems slightly incongruous to the surroundings. And then the film goes into the scene of, through sugarcane plantation, actually, and the, the reeds from the sugar. We're now, we're now in Barbados. very different kind of landscape, still rural or, or pastoral, but we're now in Barbados and we see the landscape of Barbados and you see sheep that look a little bit like goats, but they're actually sheep. The second of, I suppose, the folk characters, the Stilk Walker being the first, and this is now Donkey Man. My name is Donkey Man. Donkey Man. I love the characters. Well, this is what I was very intrigued by whenever I visited Barbados. You'd see these folk characters who would turn up at, you know, kind of excursions and fates, and everybody else seemed to be not even kind of noticing them. And I'd always think, well, what's that? What's that about? And nobody explained. So this was what really prompted me to make the film. You're saying visiting Barbados, so... Where are you based? So I was born in London, and my mother's from Barbados, and my father was from Guyana. Okay, so as you're going back, you're visiting a cultural space that is unfamiliar to you. And I've never been to Cropover, and I should explain that Cropover itself is a harvest festival that's directly connected with sugar, the sugar economy. For nine months of the year, there'd be people working on the land to cultivate sugar, and then when the last of the sugar was cut, there'd be a big festival, and that's why it was called Cropover. And it's now become very central to the uh, tourist economy of Barbados. In fact, it's shifted, it's separated a bit from the actual cycle of plantation and of cultivating of the sugar, the economy of sugar production, to be a summer festival that happens in July and August. And brings all kinds of tourists from all over the world from to From all over celebrate. the world come to celebrate it. So this is Marcia Burroughs, cultural historian, and she's explaining what we're looking at now is called a tuck band. They're kind of penny whistle and drum band. What would you like for people to take away from this experience? One that is very sensual, that there's something quite surreal about these characters. I I really love what you could call folk imagination, the way in which through popular culture 
how it transformed lived experience into a kind of metaphorical experience. That's what I was really interested in, really. Also, just the legacy that this is a, a festival that it harks back, but not in a not in an angry way. It's, it's kind of made something out of the conditions mm-hmm. uh, in a very uh, a resilient way. Right. It's very respectful of the tradition, and the tradition respects the history, even as painful as it was. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing this yeah. with me. Thank you. At the heart of Sonia Boyce's work, music is inseparable from any description of New Orleans. The Music Box Village, official site for the Prospect for Artists Party, is a magical world of shacks, miniature houses, and kinetic architecture built for hand-powered music-making. In 2016, after five years of pop-up music box performances in the city, the Sonic Village has taken root at the edge of the levee in the neighborhood known as the Bywater. I drop by to chat with co-founder Rusty Laser and catch part of the rehearsal. It's my lucky night. I get to meet P4 artist and Mardi Gras Indian chief Daryl Montana. Daryl is hard at work in the warehouse. Not only are his labor-intensive Mardi Gras Indian costumes on display in a P4 exhibition at the Jazz Heritage Museum, he's creating a new sound sculpture for the village. in the shape of the top crown of a Mardi Gras Indian suit once it's all decorated. Right now it just looks like a big egg, um, a big yellow egg. It's our newest instrument and it's with uh, Daryl Montana, who's a Mardi Gras Indian big chief. I did this in yellow. The reason why I chose the color yellow because my tribe is the yellow Pocahontas. We're gonna get it done. Yeah, you know, I'm good. used to working under pressure making these suits. Let me just tell you about the suits. The suits take 5,000 hours a year to make one. That's just me, not my help. I started doing the suits when I was six. I made my first suit at nine, and I'll be 63 in April. So I've been involved in this basically all my life. What sound will come well, through we this? Have, we have the cowbells, we're going to have the tambourines. My voice, it'll go, Mare Kurifayo. And that's the Indian spiritual song that we sing um, religiously. For funerals, Indian raid, Indian yeah, yeah. It's call and response. I say, Indians, I mean, Indians of the nation, the whole wild creation. We won't bow down, oh, we won't bow down, down on that, on that dirty ground because I love to from the nation, the whole wild creation, don't you hear me calling, softly, softly, oh my Indian Ray, oh my Indian, oh my Indian, oh my Indian Ray, because I love you.
we're about to put Daryl's house up there on top of that platform up there. So this house will kind of move back into this space and Daryl's house will be over the top of it. And we're just sort of always shifting things around and moving things around to try to find the best way to fit the most people, but also to make it so that virtually every spot in the town has a decent seat, you know, like a good place to watch from, you know, which is the, only, the biggest challenge. Well, let's talk about some of the sound and musical experiences that are created in these spaces. Every one of these structures is a collaborative work, so uh, every time that you see a house in this, in this sort of little village, which is about 14 houses right now, whenever you see one you know that at least a couple people, one generally from New Orleans, one generally not from New Orleans, has put their hands into it, put their labor into it. In the case of this house, this is called the Chateau Poulet, and the conceptual origins of it are, you know, the, the notion, you know, every every instrument we ask people to develop, we ask them to consider the ways in which our homes and neighborhoods are musical places. So if you're building a brand new instrument around the idea of musical architecture, use the concept of architecture and music to do it. And in this case, ceiling fans are really popular in New Orleans. You see them in every single house. They have sometimes a crazy rhythm that that gets in your brain if you live with the fan all the time, or maybe it makes a certain frequency or sound that you can recognize and that's yours, you know. Uh, Andrew Schrock, who's a local artist, he worked with Klaus Hubner, who's an artist that we're friends with from Berlin. Pull these ropes down and it makes these um, ceiling, these fans over your head sort of spin faster. And as they spin faster, they have corrugated tubes on them that create a harmonic effect w with the wind. And the faster it goes, the higher the pitch. So, I'm going to pull another one. It feels like we're about to take off. It does. It does. It's <laughs> nice on a hot day. It's really nice on a hot day. So if you kind of ease off of them, you can sort of lower the pitch back down. And you can play that. You can kind of move in and out of that. We, we don't... We're not aiming to create conventional instruments. You know, we're not trying to make instruments that if you play a guitar, you, you'll be comfortable on this. We want people who don't play instruments at all to feel like that they can play this or they can make it make a sound. The Music Box Village shares P4's high esteem for New Orleans musical life. So do the Kitchen Sisters, award-winning independent podcast producers based in San Francisco, California. We're the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. Nikki and Davia have been coming here for years to collect New Orleans stories. For Prospect 4, they've added something new, a collaboration with Audubanga Jones and Associates, an artist collective from Houston, Texas. Together, they staged a unique community event on opening weekend, Levy Stream, a remote live broadcast on Bayou Road. Davia Nelson is back in San Francisco when I call her to talk about the Kitchen Sisters P4 experience. Fragments of music and voices from two of their New Orleans-inspired podcast episodes flow through our conversation. You've shown a special love for New Orleans over the years. I mean, I don't think we're the only ones. I bet a lot of your listeners have that same feeling of, what do they say, it's the northernmost outpost of the Caribbean. It's to me, it's sort of like going to Marseille or just one of those places in the world that just has its own heritage, its own rules, its own way of walking. And we had been coming and going from New Orleans for years, but in terms of the life of the Kitchen Sisters, 
It was our Lost and Found sound series. Someone told us about eight cardboard discs that Tennessee Williams recorded with his lover Poncho in 1947 in a penny arcade in New Orleans. And we went in search of those recordings, and that led us into the world of Tennessee and to New Orleans. After Katrina, you know, so many people, everyone wanted to figure out how they could help, and ours seemed to be a way with a microphone, you know, could come and record stories. So we began to chronicle life in New Orleans after Katrina, and that led us to the story of we called King's Candy, a hidden prison kitchen, about Robert King Wilkerson of the Angola Three, who, while in solitary confinement for 29 years, made clandestine candy in his cell at Angola Penitentiary. It's clear that Trevor Schoonmaker appreciates what you bring to P4. I don't know that another curator would have turned to radio producers in San Francisco and said, please come be part of this. Bring your sound, bring your story, come find stories. I mean, I think that's why they reached out to us, too, that they wanted to make sure that Prospect 4 didn't just bring artists from outside in to show work there, but the voices, the music, the stories of people in New Orleans were also part of Prospect. Trevor is a curator who feels sound in the same way that most people feel sculpture or paintings or visual arts. Sound is as primary to him as all those mediums are, and I think he was really interested in bringing that aspect into prospect, and he invited us in, began to talk to us about what we might do for this exhibit in New Orleans. The Lotus in Spite of the Swamp is The other part of it is called Facing South. All our stories from the Caribbean and South America and Florida are on the Prospect site. But he also, most important of all, brought us into collaboration with the legendary Black Arts Collective in Houston, Otabenga Jones and Associates. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am your host, Cole Williams. The Levy Stream is live and on air at our neighborhood pop-up Cadillac radio station installation at the confluence of DeSoto, North Dorjanois, and Bayou Road. Part block party, part soapbox, Levy Stream is a mix of live conversations and interviews. More than 30 people were interviewed in the back seat of a cut-in-half 1959 pink Cadillac Coupe de Ville with giant speakers in the trunk, created by Odebanka Jones and Associates. Picture a wheel of five-minute conversations with artists, activists, visionaries, neighborhood leaders, live music, DJs, and sonic prayer flags emanating from speakers throughout the neighborhood. We had the Jones sisters from New Orleans, four girls, ages 15 to 19, who sing gospel like you would not believe. From the West Bank of New Orleans, ladies and gentlemen, the Jones sisters, give some love. Give love this is a new creation, Jesus in me, a close relation, having a part of his salvation, happiness is the Lord. DJ Flash Gordon Parks from Houston, who's just this killer DJ played also DJ Rockaway from New Orleans. DJ Soul Sister came and was interviewed at the booth. Two members of the Angola Three, Albert Woodfox and Robert King Wilkerson, both came. David Wagner, who is an architect who's really trying to redesign New Orleans in terms of climate change and the water issues and 
has this whole project called Floating Cities. Each hour had a title. The day began with the first hour of the day was called Neighborhood Guardians. Publisher and founders of the New Orleans Tribune, creators of Le Musée, the Free People of Color, and the McKenna Museum of African Art. They are also responsible for much of this resurgence of this very neighborhood. My childhood was a segregated childhood. I can't even remember talking to white people until I was in my teens. The next hour was called Floating Cities, then Facing South, then The Artist in Spite of the Swamp. All right, Maria. Maria Berrio, who was born in Colombia and now lives in Brooklyn, is the artist whose work is featured on the cover of the Prospect 4 catalog. Her works are a gossamer collage of Japanese handmade papers, watercolor, and charcoal on canvas, lush, magical landscapes that reflect on global migration and intercultural connectivity. Please welcome Prospect 4 cover girl, Maria Berrio. Welcome. If you have not seen these beautiful pieces of art, you have got to. Where do the stories come from in your work? I'm inspired a lot by South American folklore, by mythology. They are also autobiographical, so there's a mixture of everything. It's kind of like the same way as the materials. Like I layer different stories all together into one piece. We closed with an hour called Human Flow. So dozens and dozens of people spoke and performed with us that Sunday of opening weekend of Prospect. I listened this morning. Wow. How did residents initially respond to your project? The neighborhood kind of couldn't quite figure out what we were talking about at first because we would kind of sweep in Otabenga Jones and the Kitchen Sisters and just walk the neighborhood, and, you know, go down to Domino Sound Record Shack, and we would just go up and down Bayou Road telling people what we had in mind, telling people about Prospect. Prospect had never been in that neighborhood before, so it wasn't something even people were familiar with. Bit by bit, people just really liked the idea. We didn't, in, I mean, New Orleans, those people will party at the drop of a hat, right? They are always having street festivals. The Gumbo Festival was going on while we were there, and another storytelling neighborhood festival was going on. I mean, it's a, it's a city that gathers, that has processions, that has second lines, that has rituals that glue it together. I think that's, those rituals, those traditions are probably why it was able to remake itself in the wake of the flood, in the wake of the storm. Um, I think other cities will have harder times than New Orleans has in some way because it is so neighborhood-based, so connected. I'm wondering how participating in this exhibition will influence your future work. I mean, first of all, we met so many artists there from all over, artists whose work just was so eye-opening and heart-expanding and kind of revelatory to us. And I have the feeling that we're going to do collaborations with some of those artists. It just felt like we were finding a new group of people who we wanted to create work with. Our eyes were open to deeper parts of New Orleans. I mean, the beauty of Prospect is it ignites the city. It's not just in one place, in one museum prospect is throughout the city so it just expanded our vision of New Orleans and also mixing live and recorded events you know being able to place ourselves in a neighborhood and collaborate with a whole 
neighborhood and with a Houston Black Arts Collective and just the, you know, these unlikely collaborations that lead you to the unexpected. I love the sonic prayer flag. I, I just loved even thinking about creating it. You know, we've been so wed to telling full stories, you know, whether it's a eight-minute story on NPR or a 20-minute podcast or an hour-long documentary, and suddenly to create two minutes, one minute, three minutes, and have it really resonate, I think that's going to really affect our work. My name is Vera Warren Williams, founder and director of Community Book Center on Historic Bayou Road, the oldest street in the city that brought settlers and traders from the Mississippi River down the bayou, which is this street, to the lake. We still have the Cobblestone Street. Bayou Road cuts across the regular street grid of New Orleans, connecting several neighborhoods, Treme, the Seventh Ward, Bayou St. John, the fairgrounds. There's a little line of shops that make up the center of the neighborhood. Beautiful little structures, pale Jamaican pinks, aqua blues, mossy greens. Across from the community book center is the King and Queen Emporium. It's in the old church of I Am That I Am. And there's the Cocoa Hut, where Mother Nature sells jerk chicken and fried plantains. The Half Shell Oyster House, the Cupcake Fairies. Across from the little shotgun park where Manny and his family sell fruit, there's the Pagoda Cafe and the Club Caribbean. Matt Knowles, the owner of the Domino Sound Records Shack, says, I don't know any other street at all like Bayou Road in New Orleans. With the bricks, the angle, the Caribbean vibe, it's got a sweet feel to it. This is the Fresh Art International Podcast. I'm Kathy Bird. Today, we share a few stories from Prospect, New Orleans, one of the international art triennials in the United States, fall 2020, when Prospect returns for its fifth iteration. We expect more creative encounters with the Bayou City. I look forward to 2021, when the first-ever Tennessee Triennial invites residents and visitors to explore this urban landscape through the lens of contemporary art. Visit our website to learn more. Please take a few minutes to review Fresh Art International on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at FreshArtINTL. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, the International Association of Curators of Contemporary Art, and listeners like you make this project possible on freshartinternational.com. Sign up to receive our latest news and give a donation in any amount to support our stories. Stay tuned. For more contemporary art talk, 